everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. everyone and welcome to the Katie Helper show. This is a special stream. We are reacting to the ICJ International Court of Justice decision on South Africa's genocide case against Israel. So thank you so much for coming. Everyone please like the stream. That's a way to help uh with the algorithm. Obviously when you're covering stuff like this there's a lot of media suppression. So like the stream, please share it. Also subscribe. We've passed 170,000 subscribers, which is great. So please subscribe. And to do that, you just hit subscribe and then the bell. And that way you don't miss any of these streams. If you can become Patreon supporters, we really appreciate that. If you can do it just at the $1 a month level, that's just $12 a year. That helps this show happen. Literally, we couldn't do the show without the Patreon supporters. We just wouldn't be able to do it because people need to be paid for their labor. So please do become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper show. So I'm so incredibly excited to be bringing on two distinguished guests to talk about this ICJ decision. They've both been on the show before, so they're regracing us with their presence. Norman Finkelstein is a political scientist, author, son of Holocaust survivors. He is the author of many books that have been translated into 60 foreign editions, including the Holocaust Industry Reflections on the Exploitation of Jewish Suffering and Gaza, an inquest into martyrdom. In the year 2020, Norman Finkelstein was named the fifth most influential political scientist in the world. I say fourth, at least, in my opinion. Craig McIver is a longtime international human rights lawyer who served as director of the New York office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. He resigned after publicly accusing the UN of failing to address what he calls a textbook case of genocide in Gaza. So welcome back, Norman Finkelstein and Craig McIver. Thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you, Katie. Of course. So I wanted to have you guys on to talk about what this decision means, what happens moving forward, how much of a victory it is, how much of a disappointment it is. But I thought maybe, Craig, you could start out as the lawyer laying out legally what was actually decided. Well, this is the court's decision on provisional measures that were requested by South Africa, measures to be implemented immediately in full recognition of the fact that the decision on the merits is something that will take a long time, probably measured in years. But South Africa has requested measures that are urgent and need to be dealt with immediately. I've been saying that this was really a historic victory because it is a crack in this you know, 75 years of Israeli impunity even if it was an imperfect order that was delivered by the court today, it is still quite remarkable. You had an almost unanimous court determining first that South Africa had made a plausible case, a plausible case that Israel may be committing genocide, and it has ordered it to stop certain related actions, right? So it issued these provisional measures. First, that Israel has to take all measures within its power. I mean, that's a stand, not reasonable measures or some measures, but all measures within its power to immediately stop the the killing and the harming of people in Gaza, 
to stop inflicting these destructive conditions that are outlawed by the Genocide Convention, to punish incitement. As we know, the case was centered around all of these statements made by senior Israeli officials, and those acts are to be punished, to allow all humanitarian aid into Gaza, to preserve evidence, and interestingly, to report back to the court within a month. Basically, the state of Israel on this matter is under the supervision of the court. And I think that's quite extraordinary. I mean, if, in fact, Israel were to implement everything the court has asked it to do, to stop the kind of harmful acts and allow in humanitarian assistance and so on, that obviously would be a huge game changer for people on the ground. There was some disappointment among the general public that they didn't use the language of a ceasefire, calling for an immediate ceasefire. I wasn't quite so. I mean, I wanted to see a ceasefire as well. I thought that would be very valuable politically. But whether they use that language or not, you know, in this case, if Israel were to continue killing and harming civilians, destroying civilian infrastructure, continuing the blockade, denying humanitarian aid, uh, continuing dehumanizing and uh, language and incitement to genocide, as we've been seeing for, for more than three months, if it were to destroy evidence or not to prepare to fail to report back to the ICJ, it would be in breach of the order that was issued by the court today. And I think that's pretty significant. So I think that's the basis of the decision that was taken today. We can talk about the details and questions of enforceability and all of that, but uh, that, that's what the court said today. And it's interesting as well that you know this was not a close vote. This was as close to unanimous as you can get without being unanimous. Of course, the ad hoc Israeli judge voted against most, although not all, of the orders. And then the big surprise here for many people was that the Ugandan judge on the court voted against most of the orders, which is remarkable. And I think there's space for a lot of analysis on what that was about. But in the end, it was an almost unanimous court in a decision delivered by the American president of the court. And the outcome is about as good as one could expect from a court of this nature, which, of course, is a court. It is concerned about international law, the language of the convention, its own jurisprudence, the reputation of the court. But it also is affected by politics, as all courts are. And so I think the nervousness in going into this decision was, would they lean more on their national politics or would they lean more on the law? And in this case, it looks like they've decided more in favor of the law. That's a, a relief in this case, right? I think so, yeah. wanted to ask, had they called for a ceasefire, is there any evidence that Israel would have complied with that? I mean, should, should we for one minute think they would have? No, I don't think. I, I, first of all, I don't think Israel is going to comply with this order. I think there are two possibilities. Either they will simply reject it, and a lot of the signals coming out of the senior leadership of the government already are just language of rejection, some quite scurrilous language as well. Or option B, they might pretend to comply and then not change the behavior on the ground. But I don't think there's any chance that they would have simply, and I mean, the prime minister said in advance of this decision that they would not listen to the court. So I think that's very unlikely. And here too, Israel is unlikely to respect any of the orders of the court in any practical way, unless it is compelled to do so by other factors. And of course, that's where you get into the issue of enforcement. You know, The enforcement mechanism of the court is the Security Council. The US will almost certainly veto action in the Security Council, which then pushes it into the General Assembly, where I think there could be some real hope of some historic developments if that were to happen under the Uniting for Peace resolution in an emergency special session. But there's also enforcement that comes from other places. As the court has said, this is a crime that imposes 
uh, ergo omnes partes obligations on all the parties to the convention. And in fact, under customary international law, obligations are imposed on all countries in the world when it's a case of genocide. And they can act individually or collectively in regional groups or other groupings to bring pressure to bear through various diplomatic, consular, economic, military, trade, and other factors, criminal cases in third-party courts. I mean, there's a lot that can be done to try to give effect to the decision. I mean, if you're in Gaza, you're going to be wondering what this is all about. You may feel a rush that finally Israel is being held accountable. Just think about it, that the state of Israel is before the International Court of Justice, which has just ruled that South Africa has made a plausible case that genocide may be being committed and has ordered certain actions on the part of Israel. That is very, very important. But if you're in Gaza, what you want is for the bombs to stop falling. And indeed, you know, I have to say, with or without that language, there is no way to read this order about stopping the killing, stopping the harming of civilians, stopping the destroying of infrastructure, allowing in humanitarian. There's no way to read that. There's no way that that could be implemented while the military attacks continue. I said you can make an argument that Israel might be able to repel any attacks that happen subsequently, but to continue the kind of action in which it's engaged for the past three plus months would mean that it is impossible to implement the provisional measures ordered by the court. So it is, to me, a constructive ceasefire as well. But of course, people are also would prefer to have that language written into it. But I think, in effect, that's what they have ordered. But of course, Israel will not, unless compelled to do so, implement any of those measures. So it's like an implicit call for ceasefire as opposed to an explicit one. I think so. And there are those who, you know, who have raised, I saw Ali Abunima made a very good point, which is that, you know, a ceasefire sort of implies that you've got two warring, you know, it's like a typical conflict situation. But here you're talking about what is mostly just an attack on a civilian population and a genocidal one at that. And you don't talk about ceasefire in a genocide. You talk about stopping the genocide. And that's the language that the court was using, stopping the acts that are codified in the genocide convention, which they listed, the killing, the mental and physical harm, the creating conditions of life designed to bring about the destruction of the group, the prevention of births. They have to stop doing that. How do you stop doing that? You stop attacking the people and you allow in humanitarian aid. And that is what the court has ordered. Norman, what's your response? Well, let me just make a couple of brief comments regarding what was just said. They sound like technical points, but I think in terms of historic memory, we should keep in mind what's happened before. I would not say it's the first major legal intervention where Israel was rebuffed. I would say it's the third. The first one, in my opinion, was 2004, when the International Court of Justice delivered its advisory opinion on the legality of the wall that Israel has been building in the West Bank. That was a stunning victory for the Palestinians, because in the course of delivering its advisory opinion, the court, the highest judicial body in the world, said that the settlements that Israel has been building the West Bank are illegal. So that was established by the court. It said that East Jerusalem is occupied Palestinian territory. That's established by the court. And it said that Israel's legal borders are its June 1967 borders, and that the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza, are the designated unit for Palestinian self-determination. That was a stunning victory. The problem with that victory was Israel, excuse me, the Palestinians did nothing with it. 
they basically took the victory, put it into a drawer, and let it collect dust. But it was an important victory. The second major victory, in my opinion, was the Goldstone Report, which came after Operation Cast Lead in 2008-9. The Goldstone Report was, again, a stunning victory for the Palestinians because of its, its uh, provenance. Uh, Richard Goldstone was Jewish. Richard Goldstone was a self-identified Zionist. So his personal imprimatur on the claims that were made in the report the report that denoted a large list of war crimes that Israel had committed during Operation Cast Lead. And the report even said that the blockade of Gaza was credibly a crime against humanity. The problem there was that the United States, in particular Hillary Clinton, uh, colluded with the Palestinian Authority to crush any follow up to the Goldstone report. And then Pressures were exerted on Richard Goldstone, and he rescinded his endorsement of the report. So this is the third, in my opinion, major legal decision. How would I evaluate it? I would say I listened to it from, you know, at 7 a.m. I was tuned in. I would say that it was a stunning victory for the South African delegation because it was a complete and total rebuff of the Israeli claims made before the court. I can't go through all of it right now because it would consume too much time, but let's just go through the major aspects. Number one, Malcolm Shaw, who was a lead counsel for the Israeli side. Who you call the cross between a used car salesman and a personal injury lawyer, I believe. Yeah, he's, he has the moral gravitas of something between a personal injury lawyer and a used car salesman. Just to say, uh, Norman, I, I gave Katie a different description, but it's a, a, in the same spirit. I don't know if you remember, Katie. Yeah. You do remember. My cousin Vinny, you said he came up uh, like... My, my cousin Vinny in a wig is what I described him as. I never saw the film, so I can't, I can't appreciate the comparison. But he was so pompous. He was so arrogant. He was so confident of himself. And what happened? He was responsible for two aspects of the case. Number one, whether or not this qualified as a dispute under international law. And he made a point of personally mocking John Dugard, because John Dugard presented the South African case that it was a dispute. And uh, Dugard is a great figure. I know him personally, but anyone who even knows him professionally is what he would call a solid liberal. He is a liberal, he won't pretend to be a radical, but he really believes in liberal tenets, of which one is the rule of law. He's also 87 years old. And when you watched him come up to the podium, you could see a little bit shaky. But the 87-year-old, who was senior counsel, he was incidentally Nelson Mandela's family lawyer, and he was also Bishop Tutu's lawyer. And he made what appeared to be a very compelling case. Shaw comes into the picture and he says, there's no dispute here. He says, there takes two to tangle, but there's no dispute, there's no two. He's basically saying South Africa is pulling this out of thin air. And then he thought he came up with a clever line 
He said, this is not a dispute. This is a unispute. In other words, again, that South Africa has conjured this notion of a dispute when it doesn't exist. And then he goes on to say, you know what, with just a little bit of mediation, we probably or maybe could have found common ground, as if this were a marital spat, and all we needed was some counseling. But no, Mr. Shaw, this was one side charging you with the crime of crimes, genocide. And the other side says, not only are we not guilty of genocide, it says South Africa, because it has warm relations with Hamas, it is guilty of complicity with genocide. So marital spat, no. And the court completely rebuffed him, said South Africa has repeatedly said Israel is guilty of genocide. Israel has said that's an obscene charge. The court rules there is a dispute. So Shaw is wiped out on that. The second main claim he made, because he was the senior lawyer and he has a lot of professional stature, they gave him next the key question. Can he prove there was no intent to genocide? Obviously, one of the thrusts of the South African delegation was to demonstrate intent. And it had many aspects to that argument. The most memorable was one of the South African lawyers. He started to read the statements by senior government officials. And then he said, you can create a straight arrow line from those statements to the soldiers calling about killing of Amalek. It was a very dramatic moment. What is Shaw's defense? Shaw says, well, these were just a few random remarks. That's the word he used, random remarks by senior government officials. And then he says, if you look at the actual operational orders by the Israelis, you'll see in each of them, they're told the soldiers to respect international humanitarian law, and so on and so forth. What happened? The president, the American judge, she just read the statements by the senior government officials, what Shaw called a few random remarks, totally ignored or rebuffed what Shaw said, and then she read the descriptions of the humanitarian horror in Gaza, and she didn't say it. What was implied was, if you connect the two, what the senior government officials are saying and what's happening on the ground, plausible case for genocide. So totally demolished Shaw. Obviously, he knew what was coming. And it was very striking that when they showed the video, the South African side they're like eager beaver students. If you've ever had a class, you know, I teach, they're writing away, you know, and then they turn to the Israeli side and Shaw looked like he was in shell shock. He just looked out with a blank look in his face into a vacuum. He realized, I mean, he's smart enough to realize this was 
a catastrophe for the presentation they made. I'll just make a couple more comments, and then I want to uh, let you continue. The question of, I was totally wrong. When I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I have to admit it. That's my, you know, credo in life. I would never have predicted 15 to 2. Exactly why I was wrong, of course, I have to think about it. But there's two aspects to the 15 to 2. First of all, 15 to 2. Even though the wall of opinion in 2004, it was 14 to 1. So even there, it was so lopsided. What was striking to me was the judges had the option of delivering what's called a declaration, which is an elaboration of your opinion. The German judge exercised that option. And he made a point in his statement, it's five pages, he made a point of saying, I do not believe the military operation is genocidal. However, he said, there are other obligations under the Genocide Convention. You're not allowed to incite genocide. And he said the statements that were made could be construed as incitement to genocide. And he also said the statements could be construed as not trying to prevent genocide, which is different than committing genocide. What to me was very striking, not even the American judge exercised her right to make the distinction that the German judge did. In other words, she went all the way. She was willing to entertain that the military operation is the commission of genocide. So that to me was very telling. Nobody except the German judge exercised that option to dissociate him or herself from the worst aspects of the charges against Israel. And one last comment. In my mind, I know people will say I'm being irresponsible and I'm being not serious, but there's no possibility that the Ugandan wrote that decision, her dissenting opinion. Impossible, impossible, impossible. First of all, she drew on all sorts of arcana from the history of the conflict, quoting from the Oslo Accords from 1993 and all sorts of other stuff. What does she know about that? You know, this is somebody else. She's trying to make the point that the Israel-Palestine conflict isn't a legal question. It's a political question. And some members of the court are trying to turn a political question into a legal question. And so she says, you know, it's not true. But the kinds of references she made, no, sorry, you're not going to convince me that she wrote it. And then there was one statement, I have to say, and I'm going to just leave it there. It was totally horrendous what she's writing. I hope she was paid well. I mean, you deserve ample compensation. But then she says the following. It's clear that there was no genocidal intent. And you know what the evidence she cites is? Listen, Israel's restricted and targeted attacks of legitimate military targets in Gaza. Now, is there anybody on God's earth that's going to make the claim 
that Israel was engaged in restricted and targeted attacks of legitimate military targets. You know, the 2,000-ton bombs, the dumb bombs that were being used, the most intense bombing in modern human history, more bombing going on in Gaza than occurred in Dresden during World War II. And you're talking about restricted, limited targeting of legitimate military objects. No, at that point, I said to myself, okay, lady, I hope you got a lot of money for this because you couldn't possibly have written it. Okay. Well, Norman, you referred to the statements that the judge read, and or else we would have been here all day. She read only three of them. Two of them I've mentioned a bunch on the show, one I hadn't mentioned. Brad, could we play the clip of the judge? Unruh Commissioner General also stated that the crisis in Gaza is, I quote, compounded by dehumanizing language, end of quote. In this regard, the court has taken note of a number of statements made by senior Israeli officials. It calls attention in particular to the following examples. On 9 October 2023, Mr. Yoav Gallant, Defense Minister of Israel, announced that he had ordered a complete siege of Gaza City and there, then that there would be no electricity, no food, no fuel, and that everything was closed. On the following day, Minister Gallant stated, speaking to Israeli troops on the Gaza border, I quote, I have released all restraints. You saw what we are fighting against. We are fighting human animals. This is the ISIS of Gaza. This is what we are fighting against. Gaza won't return to what it was before. There will be no Hamas. We will eliminate everything. If it doesn't take one day, it will take a week. It will take weeks or even months. We will reach all places. End of quote. On 12 October 2023, Mr. Isaac Herzog, President of Israel, stated, referring to Gaza, I quote, We are working, operating militarily according to rules of international law, unequivocally. It is an entire nation out there that is responsible. It is not true, this rhetoric about civilians not aware, not involved. It is absolutely not true. They could have risen up. They could have fought against that evil regime which took over Gaza in a coup d'etat. But we are at war. We are at war. We are at war. We are defending our homes. We are protecting our homes. That's the truth. And when a nation protects its home, it fights. And we will fight until we break their backbone. End of quote. On 13 October 2023, Mr. Israel Katz, then Minister of Energy and Infrastructure of Israel, stated on X, formerly Twitter, I quote, we will fight the terrorist organization Hamas and destroy it. All the civilian population in Gaza is ordered to leave immediately. We will win. They will not receive a drop of water or a single battery until they leave the world. End of quote. Until they leave the world. Incredible. The Katz one, I don't think I was as familiar with. I definitely was very familiar with the Herzog and the Gallant ones. But there was something very satisfying about seeing these genocidal statements actually being read, given how brazen they were. I had spoken to both of you about these, and Craig, you had said as someone who works on this professionally, legally, you're often struggling to find the proof. You have to look in dusty archives, go through all these files to find the proof of the genocidal intent, and they were just 
saying the quiet part out loud. And Norman, you you kind of warned Netanyahu not to say those things aloud. You thought it was very unwise to do. This is very much the product of 75 years of impunity. If you If you are protected from any accountability decade after decade, you begin to believe that you will not be held accountable. And this really played against them. And it, and it wasn't, I mean, we all know about this database of more than 500 uh, statements that have been recorded now. And, um, and th- this is another indication of, you know, the fact that the South Africans, I, I, I've said a couple of times before that the brief wrote itself because this was such a clear case of genocidal intent and genocidal inactions, uh, genocidal actions in, in this case. But they did their work and they, they presented a very clear case that was aligned with everything that was in the genocide convention in terms of action and intent and identification of a particular group. And they presented evidence, evidence that was not their own, evidence from UN bodies and international institutions and so on. Um, uh, Israel, on the other hand, showed up in court and prevented, presented very little relevant argument, first of all. A lot of what they argued was not legally relevant. Um, what they did was very weak. And they were, as Norman just pointed out, they were defeated on those technical issues that they uh, they had presented. And they provided no evidence, except for some very questionable um, uh, suggestions of, of what it was that they were presenting. So, I mean, South Africa did the job for the court. It, it was senior Israeli officials did the job for the South Africans by declaring their intent out loud. South Africa did a very good job of encapsulating that and attaching evidence to it and presenting it to the court. And I think in the end, the court's um, uh, work was easy as well. Everybody was, uh, a lot of folks were very surprised at how quickly the court came back with its provisional measures in this case. And and we, I think we all sort of breathed deeply thinking, well, this could be a good sign because it means they're not back there arguing and being subjected to political pressure and all of that, but they were, they were ready to come back pretty quickly. And indeed that's, that's what happened. Um, uh, and I, and I uh, agree with Norman, you know, this is a job for the, the only sort of, you know, mysterious piece here is Seb, uh, Sebatinde, the Ugandan judge and what it was that was motivating her. I, I note that the government is distancing themselves from her position saying they don't agree and they're disappointed in what she had done because you know, the easy way to explain this is there are there are certain relations between a number of African states, Uganda among them, and the state of Israel on issues of trade and economic exchange and technology and presumably weapons, who knows what else. So that was the concern. And Norman says she didn't write this decision, probably wasn't written in Uganda either. So the question for a good <laughs> investigative journalist is, where was it written? But other than that, this really was... Uh, 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 just a very clearly presented case that was strong from the South Africans, a weak defense on the part of the Israelis, and on that basis, a predictable result by the court. I would say just briefly, um, it was a glaring lacuna in the Israeli case when you sat down and read it, that in the legal parts, they'll cite a hundred different precedents. You know, that's not difficult with uh, the legal um uh, tools available to find precedents. But when it came to the factual part of what's happening on the ground, first of all, South Africa was a barrage, 84 pages of citing every UN agency, UN humanitarian agency, 
Human Rights Agency, it was, I'll get back to that in a moment, it was incredible performance. And Israel, it did submit what it called a volume with multiple tabs, which we don't yet have access to. However, it was clear that the only sources they could cite were either government sources or Israeli media. So you saw in the presentation by the Israeli, what they always do, they'll show a picture and they'll say, this is a school and there is a Hamas fighter launching a rocket, and it's perfectly obvious it's impossible to verify anything from that picture. But what they couldn't do is cite any... Remember, the ICJ is the legal arm of the United Nations. They couldn't cite a single UN agency report or statement. There was one reference in their presentation to the World Food Program and one reference to UNICEF, but it was not vindicating them. It was just a passing reference. Otherwise, nothing there. So it was clear when I read it, as against when I heard it, it was clear that their case collapsed when it came to the evidence. That they couldn't disprove that a horror was unfolding in Gaza. And the last point I'll make is, uh, I know uh, you made the point more metaphorically than literally, the South African presentation was so extraordinary, it almost brings tears to your eyes because they had no stake in this. As you know, the expression, I have no dog in that race. Gaza is not a state. It's not a state. It's basically a stateless people. And there is no way, the reason I was skeptical all along of invoking the Genocide Convention is I could not possibly imagine any country in the world making the kind of investment that was required to prevail before the ICJ. I, you know, I do scholarship. That, that 84-page application by the South, Africa, South Africans, when you look at the sources they're citing, that had to have taken a whole team of researchers at least a month to put that together. It was so overwhelming. And it's deeply to the credit of South Africa that they not only went before the ICJ, they made a huge human and material investment in that case. I've read, for example, when it was the Mavi Marmara, the humanitarian vessel, that went to Gaza, Israel boarded it, their um, commando raid killed 10 passengers, and then they had to submit uh, they had to submit their national reports on what happened 
before an investigative body. Israel submitted two volumes. Brace yourself. Volume one was a thousand pages. Volume two was 500 pages. It was called the Turco Report. Turkey, because a large number of the people on the boat were from what was called IHH, a Turkish, it submitted like 30 very thinly argued pages, very thinly argued pages. And then to see what South Africa did for the people of Gaza, with no dog in the race, it's really a vindication of the new South Africa. Even the composition, there were white men, there was an old white man, there was a Indian woman, there was an Irish woman, there were South African black men. It was a beautiful representation of a world which is prefigured in the South African delegation not only in terms of its representation, but it went to bat for a tiny, homeless, stateless people. It was a beautiful sight to behold. You know what? It would make the greatest movie. It would. <laughs> it would make such a movie. Because you have to even imagine from step one, who initiated the idea? How did they track down this lawyers? Why did they decide on this Irish woman? It's a gripping story. South Africa goes to court. It's a gripping story. Like 12 angry men, but not with 12 white men. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it was, it was absolutely inspiring. I mean, first of all, you, you can't say enough about the legal team that was representing South Africa in, in this case. It's just the dignity of the team the skill of the team and the brilliant job that they, they did. I, I said that the brief writes itself because it was such a compelling case, but of course, that's a figure of speech. Uh, these folks did an amazing job. But South Africa, the South African government, supported overwhelmingly by the South African uh, people as well. I mean, this was an act of solidarity. It was an act of principle, and it was a costly act. It took courage because they, they are, uh, were under tremendous political pressure there was a discussion going on in South Africa about what this was going to cost the country, uh, and yet not not a moment's hesitation as a matter of principle from uh, from South Africa to take this this case uh, forward. And I think this is uh, an indication of things to come. I think this says something about the evolving international order uh, and where we are. Uh, I mean, you can say where we are in the in the gradual ending of the unipolar world or where we are in empire and how that empire is holding up and, and how it's beginning to show strains. But I, I think uh, you can't say enough things about South Africa in doing this. And it's interesting, ironically, when I started at the UN, South Africa was still under apartheid and we had all these mechanisms that were challenging them in a way that uh, Israel is challenged over its apartheid now. And um, what I remember about that time is that South Africa would come with very carefully prepared volumes of legal arguments prepared by very skilled lawyers to defend its case in, in those days. And I remember that, that struck me when I first arrived at the UN, the, you know, the, the way that they would prepare those, those arguments. They weren't sustainable in the end, but they went through that trouble. And when you compare that to what Israel did in this case, 
I mean, I concluded, I don't know what the, both of you think, but I concluded after watching it that what Israel was doing when they appeared before the court was trying to just continue to play to Western public opinion that they had decided before they went in that they weren't, that, that they couldn't win this case and they weren't going to try to, which is why most of what they presented in the hearing was legally irrelevant, right? They, uh, they raised those, those, what, what I said at the time were questionable technicalities and procedural challenges. And the court came back pretty strongly and said that indeed the, that, that, you know, those things do, don't hold. Uh, they tried to claim sympathy and turn the case upside down. That didn't get them uh, uh, very far. Um, they tried to argue that civilian and civilian objects are legitimate targets because Gaza is a terrorist stronghold and every Palestinian is a human shield. Not only is that dehumanizing, but it's also it's unlawful under international humanitarian law. It ignores international humanitarian law, uh, and it's not going to excuse them in cases of, of genocide. They tried to make the argument that uh, uh, they tried to put everything on a discussion about Hamas and to a quite absurd level. I mean, they basically tried to claim that Hamas was responsible for stealing all the aid. Otherwise, people would have enough. Hamas was responsible for most of the destruction that they actually either accidentally or purposely were booby trapping buildings. And that's how they were being disturbed. It was quite ridiculous. But even beyond that, Hamas is irrelevant. First, it doesn't justify genocide because you're fighting bad guys. And secondly, Hamas is, wasn't on trial. They're not there to defend themselves. The court has no jurisdiction over them. So that was, that was an argument for Western public consumption, not an argument for, uh, for the court. Then they tried to argue self-defense, um, which was very legally uh, ungrounded uh, in, in this case. And by the way, you know, these acts are unlawful. A claim of self-defense does not relieve you with a claim uh, of uh, of genocide. This is not a scenario where they're repelling an attack. They don't have Article 51 rights. We've all talked about that that before. So that was not a, a strong, there was a strong element of that, uh, or let's say a, a potentially compelling act in the age of counterterrorism, but uh, it was a weak argument as they as they presented it. Um, they tried to they tried to deny intent. And this was like the weakest part of their case because as we saw, first of all, in the presentation made by South Africa, quoting back Israeli officials to them, and now, you know, repeated some of them by the court in its uh, in its order, um, and they tried to get over this by playing this this video of uh, referring to this video of uh, of Netanyahu that was recorded the day before the hearing in English, <laughs> again for Western Western consumption. So transparent, so obvious. Yeah, it was. It was. And then a lot of fig leafing, right? So we dropped leaflets. We let a trickle of aid trucks in. Uh, we, we made maps with arrows on them. All of these are non-effective uh, in, in providing relief, particularly when you're dropping 2,000-pound bombs in you know, densely populated areas and on top of declared safe areas. And, and tweeting something out the same day you cut off internet. Exactly. Or trying to claim credit for aid. So any aid that did get in, they tried to project it as something that was coming from Israel, which it wasn't, uh, and and trying to you know describe Kogat, this the the military outfit that's responsible for coordinating uh, the occupied territories as the good guys, in spite of the fact that they had just quoted Kogat officials uh, as making genocidal statements, and e even some of their arguments, I, I don't know what you guys think, but some of their arguments were sort of arguing against themselves. I, I think inadvertently. There was, a, there was a line of argument that was like, we're not doing it, but we if we are, it's because we're upset about the 7th of October. I mean, that sounds to me like a, like a, a confession, and it ignores that this is use Kogan's, right? This is a peremptory norm. 
uh, of international law. And whatever reason you try to put forward doesn't justify these acts if they are if they are genocidal. And they repeated some false claims. And so so it 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 looked to me like they they had decided in advance that they would show up for the hearing, but they would do it to use it as a platform to continue to feed Western public opinion things that they could use um, uh, to try to continue to support what what it was that Israel is doing. And clearly it didn't work on the court. Let me just make some brief comments on that. I do think it's an interesting question why they showed up. In 2004, the ICJ advisory opinion on the legality of the wall, Israel showed up for what's called the jurisdictional question. That is, whether the court has jurisdiction over the issue that was raised. Uh, When the court decided it did have jurisdiction, Israel refused to show up for the merit side, where you make the actual legal arguments on the case. This time, and Israel typically does not cooperate with international and fact-finding commissions. They never cooperate with those investigations. It's interesting, just as a factual matter, uh, Hamas does cooperate. Yeah, they do. Hamas cooperated with the Goldstone Report. When the question of what happened at Al-Ali Hospital during you know, the current round, Hamas said, send in an investigative team, we'll show you our evidence. And in the last statement Hamas issued, that 18-page statement, one of the things they said is, we welcome an international investigation, unlike Israel. Now, why did they show up? It's, you know, one of the possibilities is the one that was just stated. And it's, you know, it's perfectly plausible that they were just using it as a uh, occasion to rally the forces, rally their supporters in the West. Another possibility is, it's very striking. They live in a complete bubble. They really, they're so self-righteous. That struck me with the woman who came right after Malcolm Shaw. She was Israeli. And the way she spoke, it was clear she actually believed what she was saying, that Israel has not committed any war crimes. Israel is doing everything in its power to provide humanitarian assistance. I don't think it was just theater. Well, if you see Palestinians as subhuman, then it's not really a war crime. Well, I think they, just to give you, uh, the one dissent was written, uh, the one major dissent, I don't count the Ugandan, that's just silly, uh, was written by Ehud Barak. Okay, uh, the, excuse me, Aharon Barak, the Israeli uh, judge that was allowed to be seated on the court. And it was very striking reading it's 10 pages, okay? It's, it's like he's in a time warp. He's still saying Israel is the most moral army in the world. He says at one point, acting according to Acting according to international law, he said, actually, he said it twice. He says that the court says Israel has to obey international humanitarian law, the laws of war. And he says it's unnecessary to remind Israelis of that 
because that obligation is already present in the DNA of the Israeli military, that it is already embedded in the mindset. If you read any of the human rights reports, the fact-finding missions, or the human rights reports on how the Israeli soldiers carry on whenever they go in one of their operations, if you just read the Breaking the Silence, the Israeli organization, which simply compiles the testimonies of the Israeli soldiers, not peaceniks, forget it, just soldiers casually describing the murder and the mayhem, the random destruction, what they keep calling the insane amount of firepower, the crazy amount of firepower. And then you read Barak, and he says, acting humanely, acting in accordance with international humanitarian law, that's in our DNA. And you get the impression Barak really believes it. He was the president of the Israeli Supreme Court, and he had an awful record. You know, there's a whole book written by an Israeli lawyer named David Kretzmer. It's called The Occupation of Justice, which is just devoted to Barack's record. He was, he legalized torture. He legalized hostage taking. It's very funny in his dissent. He writes, the fate of the hostages is especially disturbing. The act of hostage-taking, and he cites all these laws, you know, uh, covenants prohibiting hostage-taking. He legalized it. It was, it was the first time he called hostage-taking, he called it the taking of uh, bargaining chips. Bargaining chips. He legalized hostage-taking. He illegalized the demolition of Palestinian homes as a legal punishment, an administrative punishment. He didn't dispute the illegality. He didn't, he, uh, he did not acknowledge that the settlements are illegal under international law. His jurisprudence was horrible when it came to Palestinians. It was very enlightened when it came to Israelis. But he he really believes that these allegations, not only are they not true, they can't be true. It's in our DNA. So part of me thinks they are so cocky, they are so self-confident, they live in this bubble that they thought they could prevail because they are so humane and so respectful of international law. And the same thing as I said, the way Malcolm Shaw carried on. They're so cocky. And you know, part of me asked the question, Mr. Shaw, why are you so proud? Let's say you win. Let's say you win. It's possible. Then what are you doing? You're enabling the continuation of the genocide. You want another 10,000 kids killed? Now it's about 12,000. 
You want another 12,000 kids killed? You're proud of that? You think that's an achievement? It's kind of mind-boggling when you try to get inside the heads of these people. What are you defending? Yeah, you definitely. So, so I mean, first of all, on, on uh, the ad hoc judge, Barack, uh, appointed by the um, by, by the Israelis. It was just in November that he was quoted um, saying that he totally agrees with what the government is doing, the Israeli government, and then saying it may be proportional to kill five innocent children in order to get to their leader, to target their leader. So he went into this. I mean, I think he was selected in part because he has this reputation for defending whatever Israel does as being the right thing, no matter how, how horrific it may be. And you definitely saw that reflected. And I think her name was Galkit Rajwan. Yeah, she was the one right after Shaw. Yeah. And she, she, you, you saw it not only in what she, not only in her presentation, which was a kind of a sneering, snickering delivery that she, she was making. I don't know if that's just the way she talks or if it was that she was so indignant that she couldn't help but have that come out. But the substance of her entire presentation is that everything that Israel is doing in Gaza is a good thing. I mean, it was it was so outside the bounds of sort of normal human understanding. You know, it wasn't it wasn't just that, you know, we're doing our best, but, you know, some mistakes happen there here and there. But it was trying to project Israel as a benevolent actor in the Gaza Strip and who on this planet would actually believe that or even if they didn't believe it, be able to say it. Uh, maybe that's why she was sneering and snickering. Maybe it was difficult for her. To... What's her name? I want to see if there's any video. Rajwan, R-A-G-U-A-N, I think is how it was written in English. I think it's Galkit Rajwan. She came right after Malcolm Shaw. Okay. Well, Norman, I know you had wanted us to take a look at some statements made by Nellie Pandor, who is the foreign minister of South Africa. Yes. So we have those. It was tough. It was moving. It was smart. It was smart what she had to say, but it was also moving. The United States to have called this case meritless. Well, the fact that uh, the court says, remember that today we're not deciding about the allegation of genocide. What we're dealing with are the provisional measures. It's clear that the court does say circumstances exist where it is plausible that genocidal acts have been committed. This, of course, means once the merit case is addressed, and if the finding is that there has been genocide, those states that have aided and abetted become a party to commission of an infringement in terms of the convention. Do you think Israel will conform to the orders laid down by the court today? I've never really been hopeful uh, about about Israel, uh, but Israel has very powerful friends who I hope... uh, will advise Israel that they should act Minister, uh, in terms of Israel, the order. Would you, would, you, would you say, what does it say about Israel as a country and a government and a military? I think that's for you and the public to decide. What we've said is, here's an international instrument. Uh, let us bring it into operation and let's stop being observers uh, of significant harm. Let's act. And South Africa has acted. And what the court has actually indicated is that this convention is being brought to life in a very practical way. And I now think what we want is that the member states of the United Nations uh, must oversee the process and ensure uh, that we create a basis uh, for uh, a global community in which a resort to arms is no longer easy. 
a resort to abuse is no longer easy, and that more effort is now directed toward negotiation and toward seeking peaceful means of ending conflict. And do you think Hamas Well, as, as far as I understand the convention, states are members, states are signatories, and you bring actions uh, with reference to states, not to particular groups. But has Hamas behaved uh, genocidally? Well, uh, I believe that uh, what has been done uh, by Hamas is certainly caused great harm, and I do think that the hostages should be freed, and that's what we must focus so, upon. Madam Minister, Madam Minister, okay. do you believe so, that the so, decision of the court will help, let's say, in solving the, the problem of the Israeli aggression against the Palestinians today, and in the short term maybe can help finding a political solution to the uh, conflict between the people, Palestinian people and the Israeli occupation. Well, this is, uh, this, my hope is that uh, we will begin to move toward a process where substantively a two-state solution is being discussed. The people of Palestine have suffered harm for many, many decades. I don't be believe it will end today or tomorrow. But what we've done is a very clear signal has been sent by the court. And it's now a test for the government and people of Israel as to whether they will act in a manner that says all of us must respect international law. Well, if Israel acts in accord with it, I think the implications are for a future hopeful world. Should it not, then essentially we are opening up room for all abusers in many conflicts throughout the world. And I think we'll be setting a terrible, terrible uh, precedent. So what we should do, what all of us should do, is call on Israel to act in terms of the decision. So separate ties with Israel or are you preserving ties with Israel? I don't think it's a matter of South Africa and Israel here. The real issue, all your questions are about Israel, but the real issue is the people of Palestine who are being killed every day. The people of Palestine who are sleeping in the cold. The people of Palestine who are denied food, water and energy. That is the critical issue that all of us should focus upon. Yeah. And on that note, we're going to ask the yeah. Vice Foreign Minister of... That with the people of Palestine, we stand with the people of Palestine and our message to them is never give up hope. South Africa got over the apartheid oppression. They will overcome. Wasn't that beautiful? Tell me one other world leader who speaks like that. Yeah, it really was moving. I mean, that's somebody, uh, uh, Naledi Pandor, who, who grew up under apartheid, but not just under apartheid, but in the anti-apartheid movement. I think her parents were anti-apartheid activists, her father, uh, and she grew up in that, in that reality. And it's, it's, you know, I've had a lot of colleagues through the years who grew up in South Africa and who lived the reality of, of apartheid. And it really becomes, uh, you know, deeply ingrained, that consciousness of justice and injustice, I have to say. So uh, there is something very poetic about the fact that this case was brought by South Africa. Uh, of all of the countries in the world, if I think about it, I can't think of one I'd prefer to be the one bringing this particular case to the court. Yeah. It's a wonderful testament, the dignity, the eloquence, but it's also ironic 
because the state of Palestine did not bring the case. It was South Africa, not the quote-unquote state of the people of Gaza who brought the case to the International Court of Justice. It was more heart and more sympathy by the people of South Africa, by the people of Gaza, than their own state. Such a sad, I mean, it's wonderful, but it's also such a sad, sad commentary. And what a, what a shaming of all of these grandstanding countries of the West who pretended for decades to be the spokespersons of international law and international human rights, and who are both empowered and required by international law to take this kind of an action. And yet it was South Africa who had to stand up uh, and do it. And, and not just to do it, but do it against the opposition of powerful Western states, uh, and no doubt with some cost, ultimately, for having taken that, that courageous stand. And you know, it's uh, uh, many people have commented, and I've been saying this for some time as well, that it's it really is international law and international institutions themselves that are on trial at this moment in history. And just as South Africa has reached out a helping hand to the Palestinian people by bringing this case, they have also, intentionally or otherwise, saved the court and saved international law uh, in, in real respect, because the, the credibility, the legitimacy of these institutions and these laws has been so strained by double standards and hypocrisy and abuse by powerful states around the world. And how, how amazing that it was, the survivors of apartheid and the South African so-called rainbow nation that st stood up and said, hey, this system is worth something and, and, and did something about it. The only other country I can think of that's gone to bat like this is Houthi Yemen. Houthi Yemen, I was going to say, <laughs> you know, in this particular case. Yeah. You know? In this case, Yemen, yeah. The closest analog during the 1970s was when Cuba intervened in South Africa and delivered a major defeat of the South African government. So that's uh, one um, example. I did want to comment on what you just said. All those Europeans with their, you know, their smug superiority about European civilization and human rights and the dignity of man and citing all of these precedents, historical precedents, philosophical precedents. And then when the moment of truth came, who stood by the people of Gaza? It was the Houthis, who look like they're a throwback to the dark ages with their daggers and their robes. But they threw down the gauntlet to the whole world. There will be no business as usual while the people of Gaza are being subjected to a genocide. You want to carry on your commerce? You want to carry on your trade? You want to pretend as if nothing is happening? The Houthis said, it's not going to happen. There won't be trade. There won't be commerce, at least in our neighborhood. At least in our neighborhood, 
those primitive, backward uh, uh, Houthis showed more moral enlightenment, more compassion than all of those civilized European countries. It's a real, you know, if you if you look at it closely, there's a wonderful movie here. There is several. And there's a lot of moral insight here about all this talk about civilization, enlightenment versus backwardness and primitivity. And there's a story here. And that's not the end of the story either. When Gandhi was asked about European civilization, he said it's a nice that's idea. A good idea, yeah. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Norm, you wrote a book on him, but yeah. But that's not the, that's not even the end of the story because you, I mean, so so it was the Houthis who stepped up and they said, "I'm going to interfere with ships that are going to be going to the the perpetrator regime." Um, and then you know what what happened in return? This country that had suffered the same horrible onslaught, supported by the West, perpetrated by the Saudis, but supported by the West, that you know, an embargo and merciless bombing under both presidents. Under Trump and Biden, yeah. And Obama, too, yeah. And that was suffering from the, the worst humanitarian crisis on the planet before the Gaza crisis began, and, and then took this action without killing anybody. And the response of the West, the Americans and its allies, was to bomb the hell out of Yemen for daring to stand up to try to do its duty under international law, by the way, to prevent genocide, you know. And nonviolently, they didn't kill anyone. In the 1990s, all the rage was this thing called R2P, responsibility to protect. That was the whole talk of the liberals, responsibility. That is, to intervene where a genocide is happening. Guess what? The only ones who took that R2P seriously, responsibility to protect, were the Houthis. What they're doing is exactly what liberals said you should do. Responsibility to protect. I, I developed a real warm spot in my heart for them because they said, you're not going to scare us. You're not going to stop us. As long as the people in Gaza are subjected to a genocide, we won't stop. Do you know all the praise, all the praise that's given to the Danes, the Danish government, because it helped evacuate Jews during World War II? But is there a case, because that was Danish Jews, it was Denmark, where a totally distant people did that, you know, did that for the people of Gaza? If I were to give a Nobel Peace Prize, I would give it to three. I would divide it between three. South African delegation. Number two, those doctors who volunteered to go to Gaza. It's a really amazing story. You know, anywhere in the world to be a medical doctor is a ticket to a very easy life. And these doctors, the Doctors Without Borders and others. One doctor, he was asked, he was Palestinian. He was asked, he had all these degrees. He had, you know, he had one of those folks who was asked, why don't you leave? Because he had an option. He was able to go. He said, I didn't go to medical school 
for 30 years to abandon my people. At I this think moment. this one was killed. This one you're talking about. Yes, it was killed. So number two, the doctors. Not to trivialize anybody else's life, but they volunteered. It was a suicide mission. Even Abu Sita, who survived, he wrote his own obituary. He thought he was going to get killed, but he did manage to get out. And the third, it's the Houthis. They're the third winners in a real Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, if Gaza, excuse me, if genocide is the crime of crimes, as it's called, then I say the Houthis are the hero of heroes. Yeah. Beautiful stories, like was just said, many movies here. I don't think Steven Spielberg is going to make them. I know, I don't think so. <laughs> Apparently he's making one October 7th, though. Did you hear that? Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, if you're looking for heroes, all you have to do is to peek into Gaza on any day and see the selflessness and the courage of, uh, and the dignity of people who are watching their sisters and brothers and mothers and fathers being cut down in the goriest ways all around them every single day, and yet they go into the rubble. And they go and they, they, they walk behind the wall to rescue the person that's being shot by the sniper or the doctors, the Palestinian doctors and nurses who stay in those hospitals as they are under siege and being, being attacked. And the journalists who continue to cover the story, knowing that one by one, they're intentionally being followed by drones and assassinated in order to silence them. And they keep on reporting. You have never seen a concentration of heroism. Not only them, their families. And their families killed along with them. The families of the journalists are targeted for death. I'll tell you, during the first intifada, I was in a, a, a refugee camp. It was called, it's called Jalazon. Okay? And we were meeting people there. And as we were leaving, uh, there was a burning tire on the road. That was one of the forms of re 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 revolt. The Palestinian young people, kids would burn tires on the road. The soldiers came and they started to shoot. And they shot a kid in the back and he fell. I was with three other people, two of them are now, one of them is a retired professor, the other is a professor at Columbia, and another person, a photographer. We were all terrified. Terrified, terrified, terrified. The soldiers are shooting. The kid fell, and we're hugging the wall, hugging the wall. You know what happens? All these old Palestinian women, old women, large, they rush out of the camp to get the kid. You know? They rush to get the kid, and they, all the bullets are flying. You know, it's one of those moments where it's very humbling. It's very humbling. The, the, the selflessness, the courage, just like what was just said, in the midst of the bombing, in the midst of the killing, to go amidst the rubble to get your kids out or get people out. Let, let, let me say this, Norman, because you're, you're making my, my, my heart flutter here. I, I also was in Gaza during the first intifada. 
monitoring human rights uh, violations. And I had similar experiences and one of them that's tattooed on my mind. And it tells you what the people of Gaza are like, what the people of Palestine are like. There was a curfew and the jeeps of the Israeli soldiers were buzzing around as they do, shooting at everything that, that moves at the time. And I was there with my interpreter and stuck out on the street in, in the refugee camp and not knowing, we had no idea what to do. We had to get out of sight. And you know what the curfews were like in those in those days. You you step out of the door and you're you're taking your life into your own into your own hands. And suddenly, like out of nowhere, this family ushered us into their little one and a half room hovel, uh, their re- refugee shelter in uh, in the refugee camp in in Gaza. And this curfew had been going on for a long time. We had come in through the back way to try to you know monitor the situation. And um, this, I remember this family, they had one like plastic, like Pepsi bottle full of water and they didn't know when they were going to be able to go out. And it was like the children and the parents and the grandparents all is common. I remember they had one decoration in the entire place, which was a poster of Bruce Springsteen, a worn poster of <laughs> Bruce Springsteen and where it came from. I don't know. Um, and, and they used that water to make tea for us and they sheltered us and they brought us in at risk. They sheltered, they, you know, a whole family. They used their one plastic Pepsi bottle of water to make uh, to, to make tea for us, and then kept us there safe until it was okay for for us to leave. And that's just one of <coughs> so many of those stories that you encounter when you're there. I mean, the most amazing thing is the way that these people go through horror after horror, military attack after military attack, deprivation after deprivation, indignity after indignity, and yet they maintain this sort of grace and this capacity to live and to love and to laugh and to, you know. Um, and so to see what's happening now, that every place that I have visited in my trips to Gaza or when I lived there for two years in, in the 90s, it's all gone. It's all been raised to the ground. Ramallah, Gaza City, one of the oldest cities in the world, you know, uh, what, what is it, like 1500 BC is gone. Um, and, and then to have a total brownout in the Western media about what is happening there, about the genocide facilitated by, by, by the media and by, you know, uh, uh, politicians and others and people on social media saying the most cold blooded things about what's happening on the ground. You just wonder about humanity in the West and compared to what I experienced there, it's not humanity at all. I'm not as pessimistic about ordinary people, people in power. But ordinary people, uh, what is the poll now that one third of Americans think? Well, it's genocide. That's kind of impressive. Yeah, absolutely. This is the repository of hope. It's definitely, it's those people in the streets. It's those people demonstrating, those people standing up, those people, you know, absolutely. But you're right, the people in power seem to have, you know, and it's not just the people in power. There are legions of people out there who are cheering this thing on and angrily. Uh, And that's scary. I mean, that's a scary thought that there are people amongst us who are that sort of, their souls are that numb, you know. I don't want to be Pollyannish about it. I recognize that. But I'm still astonished at all of the outpouring of support, in particular by young Jews. Absolutely. That's, That's the most amazing thing. I never thought I would live to see the day where a large majority of young Jews think I'm a liberal Zionist. <laughs> <laughs> By comparison. <laughs> well, there's there, not to be um, 
you know, I don't want to not to be a downer, but I did want to highlight one person who uh, is being uh, a cheerleader for as moved as we are by what is happening today. There is someone who I wanted to highlight. Uh, I want to give a shout out to her. She's been a real cheerleader for genocide. Um, I don't know if you guys know who she is. Her name is uh, trigger warning, everyone. Her name is Deborah Messing. <laughs> she is a norm. Do you know who she is, Deborah Messing? No, I thought you were going to say Roseanne Barr. And I- no, she's an actress from Well and Grace. She's one of these people who's in Israel. She may have come back, but she went to Israel. She says it's so beautiful. I feel like I'm home. The people, they're so resilient. She met with the president. Um, here's a picture of her, actually. Before I show her uh, her comment, here is uh, a picture of her. Um, this, uh, this is it. This is her in Israel. As you can see, it's it's not great quality, but I'm just trying to show. Here she is very bravely in Israel with the screenwriter of the Borat movie, uh, himself a very racist Zionist. But there she is. You can see she's she's making duck face. Uh, I call that genocidal duck face. But there she is. Uh, she had the following to say about um, the extremely brave journalist, um, Motaz Azara, who you probably guys have probably followed, this extremely brave journalist who's been in Gaza, been reporting um, on the genocide. He's witnessed people, you know, killing after killing. His friends have been killed. There's a footage of him carrying a, a child, a baby who's been killed. Um, and his heart has been broken, obviously. And so Deborah Messing tweeted out or put on Instagram and he was declared a GQ um, man of the year. So she she says, watch GQ Middle East, quote unquote, man of the year. And Gaza's, quote, journalist, end quote, leaves for Qatar. Very interesting decision. And then does the like, hmm, interesting decision emoji. What's the implication? The implication is that, uh, well, I thought the implication was that he was a coward. But then the, a lot of other people thought the implication was that he's a terrorist and with Hamas because he went to Qatar. Yeah, I think that might be what they, they had in mind. You know, every, every Palestinian journalist is a terrorist. You have to justify killing them by, by associating them with terrorists. I mean, you know, this D-list, this D-list of American entertainers that are just, you know, pimping themselves out to defending genocide is one of the most disgraceful things I've I've ever seen. And that she's a classic case. You know, when you listen to the things that she says, she's entirely ignorant. I don't think she's ever read a newspaper article about the situation in the Middle East. I mean, she's completely ignorant. And yet she, she doesn't hesitate to pronounce on the situation in, a, in an angry and, and passionate way. And it's, you know, that combination of ignorance and arrogance that you see so often that you just say, you know, for God's sake, read something, you know, learn first and then, and then open well, your, your When mouth. did ignorance ever stop anyone? Yeah, have, you ever, have you ever listened to Jordan Peterson? Oh, <laughs> Good point. Well, but she's, and she's just dumb enough to not know, like if she were any smarter, she would get that what she's saying is problematic and that maybe she shouldn't be mocking a journalist who's risked his life. And maybe she shouldn't be outing herself as an Islamophobe, but she's just dumb enough. I think so. she, she has the vibe of a, like a 12 year old kid who's being spoon fed things. Yeah. Yeah. And I almost feel them, that's what they I said. Feel like, yeah. I know. I almost feel like I'm, I shouldn't even been like, she's not actually, what is it called? Like 
mentally competent for to stand um, trial of public opinion. So no, maybe I'm going to have to read because I've not eaten yet today. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, it's um, so, so, so nice to meet you. And I have to say, there seems to be a discrepancy between what you look like and your long track record. I, how old were you? No, he you does have. In, how old were you when you were in? What's your secret, Craig? Apartment? What's your secret? What's what moisturizer do you use? I, you, you should see me inside. I'm falling apart. I, I was, uh, uh, so that was, uh, I was 27, 28 years old. You yeah, I'm older than you think, Norman. <laughs> You're like, I was there at Balfour when Balfour was writing his declaration. I knew it, would be, I knew it was going to go, go sideways. I tried to warn him. You know, there's, there's, there's all kinds of great information about me on the internet and, and nobody, you know, nobody's gotten my age correct so far, but uh, they've, they've, uh, I'm Jewish and I'm Muslim and, uh, I'm a millionaire so far. I don't mind any of these, you know, uh, uh, there, your brother, all, I, assume, I assume your brother's Russell McIver. He is not, wrong? he is, he is a cousin down the road. Yeah. He has a cousin. Okay, guys. So, so, well, thank so, you so, so, so much nice to talk to you. Yes. Thank you so much. I have to finish my second reading. So I, I feel on top of the facts. I'll just read you one last word from this Barack. This is how Barack summarizes what happened today. The Eharharam uh, Barack. This is his first sentence. South Africa came to the court seeking the immediate suspension of the military operations in the Gaza Strip. It has wrongly sought to impute the crime of Cain to Abel. The court rejected South Africa's main contention and instead adopted measures that recall Israel's existing obligations under the Genocide Convention. In other words, Israel won everything. And that's the bubble. Actually, I, th I think maybe he believes it. Norm, one question before you leave. Once you get to it, how should we use this, meaning the ICJ ruling, in the propaganda war? You know, my friend and comrade and colleague, um, Jamie Stern Weiner, asked exactly that same question. And we, I thought the best um, way to put it is even the American judge acknowledged that there's a plausible case for genocide. What bigger indictment could there be of Israel? If I would have bet every dollar that I own double, there was no possibility whatsoever. Because that judge, she's known to be a hack. She was appointed by Clinton. She actually, as I understand it, I have to check, she argued the U.S. case during the Nicaragua War when the case went to the ICJ. Now, I have to check it. I have the case here. With the mines? With the mining? Yeah, with the mining of the, uh, the harbors. And even she, with no qualifications, as I said, she could have written a declaration separating herself from the 15-person majority. She did not. Even, she, even she, she, she spent her entire career before the court as a State Department lawyer, including representing the State Department during periods 
previous periods when the U.S. was complicit in Israeli violations against the Palestinians. And yet, as I said, there are other factors. You'd be a fool to ignore the politics of the individual judges in any court, but that never tells the entire story. And, and in this case, as I say, it seems that the law and other considerations, the reputation of the court and of the judges and so on, totally seems to agree. have prevailed. Yeah. Totally agree. It was, I think, the case presented by South Africa, that 84-page application, the fact that South Africa rested almost its entire case on UN sources, so to deny the claims of South Africa is effectively to say, is in effect to say every UN agency are liars. That was a very hard thing to do. And um, it was, uh, it was what you said. The reputation of the court was at stake. If they gave a thumbs down, they would have gotten the full contempt of a large part of humanity. And they weren't ready to do that. And they would have to walk around, walk with it the rest of their lives. You know, it's not just the court as a whole. It's each individual judge is on trial. And they have to carry it with them. Just on the other side, that's what happened to Goldstone when he rescinded his endorsement of the of the what was called the Goldstone Report. He destroyed his reputation. He had a he was in the Dugard category. He was in the Constitutional Court of of Africa, like our Supreme Court. And uh, when he rescinded his endorsement, he killed a lifelong reputation. And it was the same thing at stake for these judges. If they voted to give Israel a pass, they would not only have discredited the court, they would have discredited themselves. To the point that... Uganda issued a statement saying we had nothing to do with this, and we don't, you know, we don't have anything to do with this later. So it was many factors, and I was wrong, you know. And I, at, at the very front, one second. Um, yeah, we got on video. I think we, I didn't, I think you didn't even think it would reach. To, I think you yeah, counted yeah. six and a half or seven and a uh, half. At the, the, the six and a half. Six and a half, at right? The, yeah, six and a half. The, the first quote. Um, and you got uh, Germany wrong, but so did I. We thought that they'd vote not only that it wasn't yeah. genocide, but that they'd vote for genocide. That was our yeah. prediction. And in my last book that I wrote, I began with a quote. The epigraph is Bertrand Russell. I feel a real and solid pleasure when anybody points out a fallacy in any of my views because I care much less about my opinions than about their being true. So I happily admit I was wrong in that question, but I was right when I said that the court would acknowledge it was a a plausible case of genocide. However, it would limit itself to admonishing Israel. You have to obey the laws of war, and you have to cooperate to let in humanitarian aid. I said that they would not get the ceasefire because in here, and we can disagree about it, the ceasefire was a very difficult legal issue 
because Israel was claiming that you are unilaterally disarming us, because Hamas is not a party to the proceedings. So in effect, it would say Hamas could continue, not that I'm saying right or wrong, but Hamas could continue firing rockets at Israel, uh, but Israel, uh, Israel doesn't have the right to defend itself. And that was, in my opinion, it was an untenable position. Uh, I don't think South Africa effectively argued that issue. Uh, but that's for another day, because I want to eat. And it was a genuine pleasure meeting you for the first time. And of course, it's a pleasure, uh, Katie, to seeing you. It's my pleasure. Can I just read one quote from a book that, that I'm using as well before you leave, which I think is, is a, relates very much to this case. This person I respect very much wrote, for Gaza is about a big lie composed of a thousand often seemingly abstruse and arcane little lies. And I believe that this case is going to open up the truth that people who haven't considered before are going to see it. That, by the way, is from Normal Fink Norman Finkelstein's <laughs> book on, uh, on Gaza. Uh, unlike, a most, unlike most other authors, I do write my books, so I remember that line. <laughs> it's a very good line, and I think it's it, it's exactly right. At least, you know, for huge audiences in in the West, that that is a very clear statement of the case, and I think something is happening here uh, that is stripping away those lies and revealing the truth to people who never had a chance to see them before. And consideration of a case of genocide is a power, powerful light. And the way that South African uh, Pandora, the way she expressed it with such dignity, you know, finally somebody summoning the courage to talk back to the West, to talk back to the Americans, not in an ideological or rhetorical way. You can say you agree or disagree. You know, it's not a Castro speaking. Uh, very calmly, you know, with that educated British accent saying, guess what? We're your equal. We are your equal. We can talk like you. We have the same intelligence as you. And you know what else? We can talk back to you. Very nice to see. Beautiful. Beautiful moment in history and a dark moment in history at the same time. Yeah. Craig, have you eaten yet? Can I steal you for a bit longer? Yeah, I can stick around a little bit. Okay. All right, great. Bye, Norman. Thank you so much. Thank you, Norman. Taking up that question of how we use this for propaganda purposes, I wanted to show you because uh, a clip of John Kirby being asked about the uh, ruling. Of course, he's, as people know, he's the coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council. Okay, here's what he had to say about it. I wanted to ask you about the Moore Court uh, decision ordering Israel to prevent acts of genocide, uh, but it stopped short of ordering a ceasefire. Um, you have suggested multiple times that South Africa's claim uh, does not really have merit. Uh, and I'm wondering, how does the U.S. repair relations with South Africa, which is a big voice for non-aligned uh, countries in the global south? I don't believe that our disagreement over the uh, founding claim of the allegation uh, causes any permanent damage to the bilateral relationship with South Africa. We just happen to disagree on that point. Uh, but we're also going to keep working to uh, on that relationship as we do many others. So you fundamentally believe 
the U.S. They claim that the U.S. is supporting a genocidal state. That is not going to impact relations with I South Africa. I don't believe I heard that from South Africa. South Africa filed a, 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 a case based on allegations that they believe genocide was being conducted by Israel in Gaza. I don't believe it was directed at us at all. We simply have said consistently we find that that, that, that claim is, is unfounded. Um, and, you know, the, the court also did not find uh, Israel guilty uh, of genocide. The court also did not find. OK, so he's saying uh, and this is something that is reportedly now. Wait, sorry, this is so he's saying there. Um, the court did not find Israel guilty of genocide. And I am worried since we're talking about how to use this as propaganda. What what do you say to people say, well, they said that it's a plausible case. I mean, look, remember, this is the guy who arrogantly stated not just that he disagreed with the case, but the case was baseless, uh, 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 groundless and without Meritless, merit. I forget right, without what the, merit, exact, yeah. the exact phrase is. And now he's got to contend with the fact that the world court, the International Court of Justice, has said, sorry, but we see a plausible case for genocide. And it's strong enough that we're making, we're ordering provisional measures to protect people from these acts, right? So, so he's, he needs to read a little bit on the International Court of Justice. This is the first hearing on provisional measures. They have come down 100% on the side of South Africa. They have found a plausible case of genocide and they have ordered these provisional measures. And now they will proceed, uh, they will proceed to the merits. Uh, but he, his his claim that it is baseless and without merit and whatever was the entire phrase, he's he's already lost. He's been disproven uh, in in this regard, and um, uh, and you know he he can say, well, it's got nothing to do with us. But as we have discussed on your show already, you know there is a separate crime under the Genocide Convention, which is the crime of complicity, and the United States government and individual actors, including himself, in my view have been complicit in this genocide, which is a separate crime. And today, when everybody was focused on the uh, preliminary ruling of the International Court of Justice, there's another court case going on in California, brought by the Center for Constitutional Rights uh, in American courts, uh, seeking to hold accountable uh, Biden and Blinken and, uh, and others uh, for complicity in genocide. And so he, he is not off the hook. In trying to uh, in trying to distance himself from this, I think he's uh, he's very much on the defensive. So you know, the, the the world court has taken up a case of genocide against Israel. It has rejected the procedural challenges, the questions of jurisdiction, the questions of standing, and it has said all of these things apply. And it has found that South Africa has made a plausible case. For genocide in Gaza, that's the first thing. That is like that is historic, uh, with with a capital H. However, Kirby wants to try to uh, to spin it, and it's gone even further and ordered these provisional measures, saying you have to stop what you have been doing um, uh, effectively. And it's not the end. You know, there are cases pending in the International Criminal Court. There will be cases pending in other third party courts under universal jurisdiction. Uh, and and I think they they know that they're on the defensive. And I think it explains a lot of the fig leaf harvesting that you've seen the U.S. government engaged in uh, with with these, you know, uh, 
bragging about negotiating a trickle of trucks and encouraging the Israelis, you know, to kill less civilians in the midst of a genocide and, uh, and so on. They know very well that they are exposed. Uh, and, and beyond being legally exposed, they are politically exposed. Uh, I mean, I think that, that the final nail in the coffin of Joe Biden's election campaign came with his support for genocide and the rejection of his candidacy as a result by young people, by progressives, by American Muslims and American Arabs, uh, by large numbers of people of color, by progressive Jewish communities. Um, you know, he, he didn't have an edge and whatever edge he may have had is now gone as a result of that. So there will be political accountability as well for those who have done this. And then, you know, the, the other thing is, as I said, this has revealed a part of the story that has been uh, blocked for U.S. audiences by American politicians like, like Kirby, but also by corporate media stations that have tried to maintain an information brownout about the genocide happening to make sure people in the West are not aware of it. So they only get little fragments about some war between Hamas uh, and Israel and, and what happened on October 7th. And maybe there's a few uh, excessive acts by Israel, but they don't get the story of the horror that has been unfolding for more than uh, three months. And some of those media companies have actively disseminated Israeli propaganda, dehumanizing rhetoric about Palestinians, actual incitement to genocide, uh, even justifying war crimes like attacks on hospitals by, by circulating these stories, just as Kirby himself has done, by the way. And so now, as the story is getting out, they're trying like crazy to downplay how badly Israel has lost this stage of the proceedings by focusing on the ceasefire qu question. Well, they didn't order a ceasefire. And now Kirby trying to strictly say, well, he didn't have a finding of genocide. Well, they haven't gotten to the final finding, but they've said it's plausible. So anyway, they tried to spin this. They're not going to get away with it. This is, uh, uh, this is a crack in not just in Israel's 75-year uh, wall of impunity, but also in, in uh, the U.S. government's impunity for complicity in these crimes. And we have one more clip of Kirby, which I want to show you to ask you about um, both what he says, but something he's wearing, which we'll get to at the end of it, which Brad pointed out. Okay. Well, the death toll in Gaza is staggering, reportedly now more than 26,000. Is there anything at this point that would stop the president from supporting Netanyahu? We continue to believe that Israel needs to get the support that they need to defend themselves against uh, a still viable threat by, by Hamas, an organization that wants to wipe them off the, the map. So uh, we're going to continue to support Israel. At the same time, we, we, can, we can still continue to urge Israel to be more careful and more precise. We can continue to urge Israel to get more humanitarian assistance in. Does the president still believe his personal diplomacy with Netanyahu is as effective as it was earlier in this war? It is as vital now as it was on the 7th of October. And I fully expect that you'll continue to see the president and Prime Minister Netanyahu engage appropriately. So to clarify, there is no red line. There is no point at which the president would stop his... I would just tell you that we continue to believe the approach that we've been taking on behalf of Israel to help them as well as on behalf of the people of Gaza to help them, um, is, is, uh, is showing results, and we're going to continue that approach. I don't know what results he's talking about, but... Well, I think, I think it's pretty clear. I mean, yeah, I either, guess you're right, yeah. Yeah, either, either they are really intellectually limited and clueless, or 
the results that they see happening in Gaza are the results that they want to happen in Gaza, which is a complete ethnic purge of Gaza, the destruction of civilian life there and civilian infrastructure there, uh, uh, leading to an eventual solution where the people of Gaza are no longer an issue because they won't be there um, for, for the most part. And there you heard it. I mean, he not only did he say there are no red lines for Israel, uh, but he gave a, a full, enthusiastic and unwavering commitment to continuing to be complicit in what it is that Israel is doing. And, you know, people struggle with words around what it is the United States is doing. And early on, you know, so, so did I. Uh, but they've gone from tolerating to enabling to be complicit to being an actual joint party in genocide in Gaza. I don't think there's any other way to read this. Uh, and so the only challenge now is impunity, how to hold these people accountable. And uh, I think, you know, history will certainly hold them accountable. But in the meantime, we have to do everything we can to rein in this abuse of power that is being practiced by these two governments in, uh, in the destruction of Gaza. Well, check this out. Brad noticed this, by the way. Let's see this freeze frame of Kirby. He, you see he has something around his neck? Uh-huh. So Israel War Room tweeted, Kirby appeared at his podium today wearing the dog tag. Class act as usual from him. White House is John Kirby receives a symbolic dog tag from a father of a young Israeli that is held hostage by Hamas in Gaza. It says, bring them home now. Isn't that moving? I mean, you think that he would be upset with is- at Israel for bombing places that hostages could be if he cared about the hostages. You just have to wonder who 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 is in charge. I mean, you really do. I mean, the 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 you know, this is a senior government official in the Biden administration standing at an official podium, speaking ostensibly on behalf of the United States of uh, of America. But all of the symbolism and all the commentary uh, doesn't suggest that that's who he is. He is a, a, f- a former admiral in the IDF, as far as I can tell from the positions that he's. Uh, that that he's taking, but he he's been of uh, of all of the U.S. officials, you know. And I've said one piece of evidence of complicity beyond the the arming and the financing and the intelligence support and the vetoes and the diplomatic cover and all of that. But another piece of complicity has been precisely the use of the podiums of official U.S. government agencies, especially his, to disseminate Israeli propaganda, dehumanization. Uh, justification for war crimes and so on. And, and he's, he's definitely, you know, on the first page of that catalog. He's been doing that since the beginning of this, uh, of this assault. And I, I don't see this man suddenly growing a, a conscience. And he's another one who's famous for, you know, uh, talking about how he supports everything that's happening. And then when he's asked a question, throwing out fig leaves, you know, we, we, we continue to engage with them on making sure that they're respecting humanitarian law. I mean, really at this stage, respecting humanitarian law, uh, and, you know, uh, uh, letting in a trickle of trucks and then trying to claim that that is proof that the U.S. is taking a moral position uh, and we're supposed to ignore everything else that they're doing, including being a, a co-perpetrator in this genocide. And one more thing I have to bring up, because you are perfect to comment on this. Um, I want to introduce this uh, by showing a tweet from Sana Saeed, who is an Al Jazeera journalist. Um, she. She tweets, the release of this statement, uh, the release of this statement coming right as news begins to spread about the ICJ ruling um, 
and ahead of press briefings is a cynical attempt to change the news of the day. And then she tweet, and then she is quote tweeting new. The State Department has put a temporary hold on funding for UNRWA, the main UN agency in Gaza, following allegations that twelve UNRWA employees were involved in Hamas's October seventh attacks in Israel. And sure enough, I have to say, her prediction is one hundred percent true because I was talking to someone on the phone, a relative, and I mentioned that I was doing a stream tonight about this, and they said. Oh, it's all so terrible what's happening. And it looks like um, there are people on UNRWA payroll who were involved in October 7th. That's the response to my saying I'm doing a stream about the genocide case against Israel. I don't think it's a coincidence at all. And I mean, a couple of things I'll say about that. One is that Israel has always hated UNRWA because UNRWA represents a lifeline that prevents them from totally destroying civilian life in Gaza. If it weren't for UNRWA, because of the the, the, the the caged reality of Palestinians, the permanent refugee status of Palestinians in uh, in Palestine, Palestinians wouldn't have the health care and the education and the housing and uh, and the humanitarian assistance and other things that they need. And so that's a threat to Israel's ethno-nationalist plan for the occupied territories. And so they have for years worked to try to attack and discredit, and they've made false charges for years. Now, in this case, I don't know if any of these, you know, there are thousands of UNRWA employees in Gaza because it's it's the main employer in Gaza. And it includes people who are teachers and doctors and engineers and uh, uh, and janitors and drivers and uh, and all sorts of people among those thousands. So it's not impossible that some of them when when the when the escape happened from the cage, that some of them escaped as well uh, in that. Um, and uh, I saw today from the UN spokesperson that they actually fired these people. But it, but the way they described it is like firing them and they're investigating. Well, it seems to me you would investigate and then fire them. So I don't know if they got some confirmation. But what concerns me about this is that the accusations came from Shin Bet and other Israeli intelligence officials based upon interrogation of suspects that they were holding. In other words, people who were tortured said that these UNRWA people were also uh, participating in, in October 7th. So it's possible, uh, but I am not going to be convinced until I see an independent investigation uh, in, into this question because of the source, because of pre previous false accusations. And even if some of them did, that's not an indictment of UNRWA. UNRWA is the largest employer in the occupied territories because Israel doesn't allow any other private trade and things to uh, uh, and a normal economy for uh, for Palestinians. So even if, I mean, you take any organization with thousands of employees, some of them are going to commit some crimes. That's just the nature, the nature of the beast. That said, here's the worst part. The population of Gaza have been battered and brutalized and had a genocide perpetrated on them. They've had their homes and their entire infrastructure destroyed. They're starving. They're dying of disease. They will, the survivors will rely upon a well-functioning UNRWA. That's going to be the difference between life and death today and for many, many days and weeks and months going forward. The United States of America chose at this moment to cut off funding to UNRWA, in spite of the fact that the Commissioner General fired all of these people, just on the basis of allegations coming from the torture services of Israel, 
And that wasn't enough because the U.S. wants to participate in causing the Palestinian people of Gaza to suffer so that it can satisfy its Israeli partners that it's being as vicious and malicious as they are uh, in inside of Gaza. I think that's an absolutely horrific statement about the moral depravity of our own government in its Middle East, uh, in its Middle East policy. Wait for the investigation. Accept that some people have been fired, um, uh, but why would you cut off funding to, to UNRWA? What, what is the motivation for this, if not to assist Israel in its broader plans of the ethnic purge of Gaza? There is no other explanation that makes logical sense. It's just terrible. And, it's, and it, I don't know what we're going to do so that people know how to react to that news in a way that's not, oh, look how bad things are. It turns out there were people in the UN participating October 7th, because then once again, it's all about vilifying the Palestinians and the Israelis are just victims. Yeah. And it's, and it's about justifying the targeting of UN compounds and uh, UN shelters and UN schools and UN. I mean, this is this is the game that they've played for for a very long time. Look, you know, this propaganda war is going to go on and on and on and on. But in the end, you know, it, it has been going on all along. They have their their complicit media outlets that will report whatever it is they want to report. They have news outlets that refuse to play South Africa's case in the hearing against uh, Israel, but then played in its entirety Israel's defense. Uh, and that's, you know, that's, that's always going to exist, but it's not working anymore. Most people have figured out this game. Uh, it has taken, unfortunately, the, moder- the martyring of tens of thousands of innocent civilians to, to, to get the story to get out. But I don't think that genie is going back in the bottle, whatever propaganda campaign the Israelis and their, and their U.S. allies decide to, uh, to, to, to embrace. Yeah, it's a problem. It's a problem if it turns out to be true. But it just needs, if it does turn out to be true, and we don't know, given the source, but if it does turn out to be true, it needs to be put in the context of thousands of people, a handful of whom turned out to commit crimes, which is true of every organization. I'd like to make a list of all of the people employed by the United States government who are committing crimes. Well, that's that's actually the entire... <laughs> yeah, you, you, your hand would really get sore. The entire administration. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I mean, really, you know, people have to keep these things in in context and not be manipulated by these sort of transparent propaganda efforts. Well, Craig, as always, thank you so much. Any final words? I mean, you've spoken enough, but anything else you want to make sure that you mention? Not at all. Always so nice to talk to you, Katie. Thanks for the great work that you're doing. You know, thank you. Thank you for your great work. Not at all. My pleasure. Always so good to see you. And everyone should follow Craig at Craig McIver, just his first and last name on Twitter. Nowhere to hide. Nowhere to hide, yeah. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Katie. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordoba. See you next time.